Joining me this week, it's Adam Myros. Ma, you never know who you're going to throw to first. Yeah, I know. I like to keep you guys guessing. Yeah. How's, how's your week going, buddy? Uh, very busy. Very busy. Oh, yeah? Are you I'm just, just you uh, watching the Rugby World Cup every day? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you you were, you studied English as an undergrad, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, I haven't uh, had that experience, really. It's never been what I've done, but now I'm taking a a literature class and it's just like read these seven novels in the semester i'm like well it's been a long time yeah. we'll just say that since i've i've read this volume of things at this speed that's a lot man yeah you're reading a, a you know a book or two a week it's uh it gets pretty intense yeah it, it, it's a little much when you're trying to write a screenplay and uh six other things you know it's just kind of like oh great gotta yeah. set up time to read 200 pages of this fucking book tonight. Yeah, unfortunately you can't major in playing and playing fucking Starfield, Myros. So, yeah, yeah you, I, you I wish. Tighten your belt here. I wish. Jack Easton also joining us. Jack, how you doing? Oh, uh, you know, uh, it's it's always fun to get together with you guys and uh, just talk about movies that are usually terrible, but this week we we accidentally screwed up. We watched some okay stuff. Both. Yeah, I, I want to kind of see our ratio for this year, because I feel like 2023 has been the year of not so bad. Like, we're probably like 70% not shit, or at least like 60% not shit. I think. We got to be mm. close, right? Yeah. Well, I think I think this seems is... like we got some work to do to the back end of the year. Then. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, I guess I guess the lows were lower than ever we we did spend some time with our friend brett michaels and that you know he almost counts double for shit so uh, what can you do uh but yeah we'll, we'll do we'll do some real work in the back end especially when uh, jack goes on sabbatical in november we'll uh myros and i'll just load up on some real fucking diarrhea it'll be great yeah you got you got to bring back costly content why, why haven't you been <laughs> churning that one out Honestly, like, I, I think we had to stop doing that, uh, and, and we'll bring it back at some point, but it, it, it's actually, like, it's difficult. Like, it, it hurts you. It's psychic <laughs> violence being enacted on you. Yeah, yeah. Just the sheer amount of research that uh, goes into it, too. And I don't mean, like, researching the subject. I just mean, like, watching uh, 500 movie trailers <laughs> to try and settle on the fucking worst possible thing you can find. Yeah. Not, not scrolling great. through the I, first uh, 7,000 listings on Amazon Prime. Or something. Mm -hmm. What a treat. What a treat. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll have some fun stuff in November, I'm sure. Uh, and then, of course, we've got October coming up, which will be uh, Spooky Shantober per usual. We got a great lineup for that. And, you know, we celebrated 250 episodes last week with a patron special. Uh, the patrons voted and they chose to be originals but what a lot of people don't know is there's some last minute votes that were cast and we actually had a tie so in honor of that tie that's what today's episode is we're talking about ringo lamb so you know what hold on one second guys uh my cat has found a very large screw and is carrying it around in her mouth so i'm gonna grab that from her myris you want to fill some dead air <laughs> well i mean we could always <laughs> just stop down but if i'm i'm gonna fill dead air i suppose we I would say that uh, you, um, I think most American audiences probably most familiar with Ringo Lamb as 
the director of, of City on Fire, which was, of course, uh, pretty much the it's Reservoir Dogs, except this yeah, is very tastefully much cannibalized by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Mm. I'm back. Sure, the screw has been removed from the cat's mouth, so we're good for the best. For the best, yeah. I mean, it, she's she's not very big. I feel like if she would have swallowed it, it's like it's probably like a fifth of her body. So that would have been a, a bit much for her. So. Uh, yeah, not going to kill any animals on my watch, unlike Ringo Lamb. <laughs> uh, no, we're, we're going to get to his, his definite animal murder later. But uh, I, yeah, I think we're going to start with Undeclared War. And this is an interesting slate because once again, you guys are covering Ringo Lamb for the first time. This is I'm, I'm creating a straw man right now. Why are you covering the three movies that you've chosen? Why wouldn't you cover to kick things off, City on Fire, uh, Prison on Fire, School on Fire, uh, any of, you know, his really well-known work. And the answer is twofold. One, I think we have a slate of Ringo Lamb's maybe like most underrated films. Uh, these, uh, I, I can't say for sure on full alert, but I can tell you uh, Undeclared War and then Burning Paradise in the mid-90s were massive commercial failures. So... Uh, did not do well, but also I think all three of these movies are pretty fucking fantastic. So we're going with with underrated Ringo Lamb. Uh, sure, you're, you're the most. You're full of shit, Steve. I, I feel like we should give maximum transparency. Oh no, 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 and that's I was going to get to that too. You bozos only picked this because you happened to buy the Blu-rays. Yeah, <laughs> I have stuff lying around. Yeah, the reason yeah. we're not doing the On Fire series is because uh, Prison on Fire is screening in Chicago in like next week or two weeks from now, and I don't want to watch it now and then have to go watch it again, you know, for the podcast. We can just push the podcast. Mm -hmm. Easy. It's sensible. See, it all makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're doing some underrated Ringo Lamb movies that we just happen to own on Blu-ray, and we just happen to be like, well, we should probably watch these since we own them. Just uh, stick to the yeah. positives. I mean, you, yeah, mm -hmm. this, this is a great slate that came about from our great foresight to uh, mass large sections of movies on DVD that we haven't got around to watching yet. I yeah. have I have no uh, objections to this uh, methodology. It's just I don't know that uh, I would allow you to couch it in like, well, we settled on these underrated. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm kind of retconning it here, obviously, but uh, it, it it worked out well. Uh, Adam, yeah. Adam, we're we're okay with our audience seeing how the sausage is made, but we're still allowed to name the sausage. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I I will say that uh, we're we're not going to name names here, but two out of three people on this podcast have a substantial amount of movies just sitting on shelves that are still in shrink wrap. So, uh, you know, it's, it's for the best. We're helping everyone, namely ourselves. So I mean, frankly, if we want to keep watching okay movies might be, let's just stick to our shelves. I mean, we wouldn't buy bad movies. That would be an insane thing that only weird obsessive people would do. No, we wouldn't do that. It's not, it's not like we would just, you know, randomly get a movie from a, a, a niche boutique, uh, distributor that we've never heard of before, but it's just a random slasher from 1987 made by some director who never made another movie, and now we own it on 4K or something. No, why, no, why I would, would never buy something that? just because it sounds ridiculous. That's no. Who would do such a thing? Obviously not Crazy. Us. Unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about Undeclared War. This is kind of an interesting one in Ringo Lamb's uh, filmography because it definitely captures 
the essence of Ringo Lamb, which is deeply cynical. Uh, you know, you, you've got your good guys and bad guys, heavy finger quotes there, but Ringo Lamb's thing is he's a grumpy old guy. I mean, he wasn't that old when he made this movie, but he, he makes films like a grumpy old guy and he likes to portray all of his characters as assholes. Like no one's just good in most of his movies. And this definitely has that. Uh, it's also a uh, contemporary crime drama action film, which that's Ringo Lamb's bread and butter. He said numerous times in interviews over and over and over again, like his thing is these are the only kinds of movies that he wants to make. Anytime you see Ringo Lamb make a movie that's not like City on Fire or not like Undeclared War, uh, it's he's he's not happy about it. So, uh, yeah. And then this is also interesting because it is... Uh, kind of a, a rare early occurrence for Ringo Lamb where he has an international cast. Uh, and and what a fucking cast it is because we got Vernon Wells, baby. Uh, one, of the, one of the greatest of all time. And I, I will say that the plot of this film is all over the goddamn place. There's a, a, a revolutionary group and there's Vernon Wells trying to do crime and profiteering and there's an assassination attempt and there's the CIA doing things. And I don't know what the fuck is going on. But what I do know is Vernon Wells spears a live fish and then puts it on a grill. And that's just fucking cool. So, uh, yeah, undeclared war. Amazing. Steve, how old do you think Ringo Lamb was when he made this movie? Because he was 35 years old when it was really... <laughs> Yeah, no, the no, crusty no. old man. <laughs> no, he—that's what I was saying. Like he—he he wasn't actually old. He's—I think he's the exact same age as like Chow Yun Fat, or like a, around the same age. Because, they went to school together, acting yeah. school together, which is also hilarious because Ringo Lamb, another fun fact, hates acting, and they went to acting school together, and uh, they—I think they both got cast on a TV show, and Chow Yun Fat was just some extra that no one cared about, and Ringo Lamb, who hates acting, got some like reoccurring role on like a fucking 60 episode series that he was just despised it. So, uh, there you go. But yeah, he, uh, it, it's, it's weird too. Cause even when he passed away, like he passed away in his early sixties, I want to say. Yeah. And again, you never would have guessed it because he really, it, the cynicism that he displays and just the way he makes movies, he seems a lot grumpier and crustier and therefore older than he actually is. So, uh, yeah, he was only 35. Who knew? But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Undeclared War is like, um, it's it's an interesting movie in a lot of ways. It came 1990 when it was released. And um, it's it's curious because it has an international cast. We've got Vernon Wells, obviously, of Commando. And we have Olivia Hussey of, uh, you know, uh, Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, now on Criterion. Yep. First boob you ever saw, probably. For, you know, I've still never watched that one. That was never shown in my school. Hence, I've never seen it. I, th I feel like it's one of those ones, if you don't see it in school, when when are you going to go and see Romeo and Juliet? I don't know. But it's mm -hmm. it's a, an interesting film because it has this international cast uh, led up by Peter Liapis or Lapis. I'm not sure. Yeah, he's, he's in Ghoulies, I believe. It's probably one of his more prominent roles. Oh, yeah. Um, but it, it it's really a Hong Kong movie, otherwise, through and through. The action, the the presentation, obviously, location-wise, it's mostly shot in Hong Kong, but they do have a section in Warsaw somewhere. I believe it's shot there. They shoot on mainland China and Guangzhou for a little bit. Um, and I suppose what this film showcases is, firstly, as I say, it's very much it's a Hong Kong movie through and through and how it, it 
kind of moves and breathes, but it's also very good, very indicative of Ringo Lamb style in that it's like the whole movie is shot very street level, gritty kind of on location action. Ringo Lamb was known, I think, for, uh, you know, he shot a lot on location. I think he was also one of those guys who would like not get permits and things and just like oh, just no. run run stuff as long as he could until the police stopped him or <laughs> never caught him. And I'm, I'm glad you brought War that up that. because... Uh, if if I could interrupt you for a second, I, I was going through some interviews with Ringo Lamb, uh, and he was talking about how he shoots, you know, on the streets of Hong Kong because he really does like this is like an iconic part of uh, what makes Ringo Lamb Ringo Lamb. Like when you when you see the kind of claustrophobic action in the Hong Kong streets that you immediately associate with him, and uh, he said, you know, he remembers when he did City on Fire and Full Alert uh, and Undeclared War. And what he would do is he never got a permit. And whenever he had to shoot on the streets, he they would just plan everything out. He never did a master shot. He would just shoot everything piecemeal, basically in order, and then just kind of put it together. And he said when he shot on the streets, the cops would come up to him and because they would get called because, I mean, he's, you know, got people covered in blood and there's fight scenes and whatever the fuck is going on. And so the cops would come and he would have his whole crew there and he would tell his crew, like, everybody, don't give in, just keep going. Uh, and so basically he would tell the cops, either you let us finish what we're doing or you can arrest the whole crew. That's it. That's the choice. And he said every single time the policemen didn't arrest them because they didn't want to work or do all the paperwork. So that's how he got away with what he does basically honestly, <laughs> that's fucking incredible. That's the kind of strategizing that the late William Friedkin would tip his hat to just you know break the rules yeah. and make it work for you exactly well and and you know ringo lamb was a he was a big freaking fan too uh i i think i saw uh there's another interview i saw too where he was he was talking about how much he loves freaking and then he said that uh basically all he wants to do when because someone asked him at one point they were like what kind of movies do you want to make and he just said he just wants to make the french connection over and over again which you know yeah Sure. Yeah, that, that sounds that sounds about right. Now I think he's got close on several occasions, or even beyond, with his own distinctive flair. And I mean, it, I suppose above all else, like undeclared war, um, it it has shortcomings certainly, but I mean, it the the action and the violence in this movie is just absolutely frenetic and electric and chaotic, and like there's almost like a, a documentary veneer over it in terms of just how mm -hmm. close the camera gets in on everything and how it kind of moves. Like I say, everything is on location. There's just this real immediacy to it. And then whenever guns start going off, like there's huge just blowout, like clouds of, of blood everywhere. <laughs> like it's absolutely oh, yeah. insane. And just, it's just, you know, electrifying aesthetic. I think just it's a kind of so somewhere between, you know, like a, a kind of a, realism and this just incredibly heightened severity of violence that that really rings and, and i think really elevates this and a couple of other like late uh, 80s and early 90s hong kong films like i think like tiger cage and so on have similar just this incredibly gritty aesthetic that really really works so well and it kind of really draws you in mm -hmm. yeah the opening of this one is just incredible so uh, yeah, I, I mean, if you're a young filmmaker, you want to know a great way to start your movie off with a bang, 
I recommend a hyper-violent mass murder shootout in a Catholic church during a child's baptism. Because, uh, uh, holy shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, which which yeah. ends with the, the child doesn't make it. Above all, like, the, the guts to go there. Uh, yeah, Ringo Lamb is just like, no hold bar, no prisoners taken. And within about three more scenes after that, he does pretty much the same thing at a funeral in Hong Kong, basically suggesting all... All sacred human celebrations are are rife for violent upheaval in this world. Mm -hmm. I like yeah, that one too because they desecrate that's like, the body. <laughs> <laughs> that could that could be like one of my struggles with this movie, uh, and I, it is a movie I quite enjoyed. But it's just like it starts at a ten, <laughs> and then it's kind of like a lull. You're like, well, oh, what happened to that movie where everyone was fucking getting shot in like the most obscene squibs you'll ever see, like. <laughs> blasting pink dust everywhere i'm like i i want that to come back I, I don't care about this intrigue thankfully it's a it's good old vernon wells but uh yeah i don't know this is a it's a really strange movie i i do quite like it but i think all three of these are quite a bit in discourse with other films and this is uh you can feel like the the lethal weapon <laughs> influence in this thing for sure uh with uh lapis's character and um yeah, it's even got like a fucking diplomatic immunity subplot. Yeah, yeah. It's I I think what what pulls this one down a little bit for me. I think it's very enjoyable on just the grounds of just being like a kind of crazy thriller. But um, there is firstly the the character work in the movie. It's just it's not great. The, the even you know Danny Lee plays the primary Hong Kong detective and he's just sort of like a blank slate he's kind of just like a workaday cop who's honestly you're not even sure he really gives a shit about any of this you know and then the American side Peter Liapis is uh he, he all he does is shout and start fist fights with people pretty much and he's a CIA mm. on the ground in Hong Kong and he's the one just shouting at everyone like you don't know how bad this guy is everyone's gonna die and everyone's like what are you talking about? And then he just goes and sets up a CIA black site torture spot for fun. <laughs> and, you know, it, but like essentially the characters, there's not a lot working to them. There's not a lot of chemistry between them. And then also for what is nominally a political thriller, there's interesting subtext, I think, within the film itself and it kind of metatextually politically where this movie came out really on the fall of the, uh, the Berlin Wall and um, Tiananmen Square and so on was happening. Um, you know, there's kind of these interesting touchstones in reality, but the film itself, there's a kind of a non-specificity to the political allegiances here that is unclear. Uh, we have, we start off in, you know, recently uh, liberate westernized, I guess, Poland coming out of the Eastern Bloc and so on. There's an assassination there and it's being done by Vernon Wells, who turns out to be the big bad. He's the leader of the World Liberation Army. Uh, a, a militant group with unspecified beliefs. Olivia Hussey plays like the second in command, but she really, mm -hmm. she's a true believer for the cause. She talks about imperialist swine and capitalist pigs and so on. So one would assume they are leftist coded of some description, but it turns out Vernon Wells is just killing people for the money, but who is paying him and why is completely unclear. Uh, so there's kind of this, this non-specificity in the, the, politics of the movie that means that as a political thriller it doesn't really all the, all the gears don't exactly interconnect properly so at a certain point it's just like why is anything happening here it's happening because it looks cool 
Yeah. Which yeah. is not the worst situation, but you know, maybe you know, for me I think this is probably the weakest of the three that we're we're discussing in terms of like a standalone film experience. Mm-hmm. In reality, I mean, he would be being paid by the CIA, so it's kind of hard <laughs> to put him against the CIA. <laughs> you know, yeah. who's he destabilizing this region for, if not uh, the Peter Lapis? Uh, but, um, yeah, it is... I don't know. I, I wouldn't... I think it's it's quite an entertaining film. Uh, it's just that I think my major issues are, yeah, it is really slippery on that front, because, again, I don't know, there's this weird interview at the end because vernon wells keeps trying to get his message out on tv and what he's interviewed at the end it's, it all of a sudden takes this like really strange like pro-us stance of like ah but america is great and they they invented democracy and i'm just like what the fuck where did this come from there's, yeah there's <laughs> some very odd stuff in there where yeah it's like they're asking about america because obviously olivia hossey's character has pegged america as being the big evil basically and they just ask her like dumb questions they're putting her on tv and it's like but america had a revolution and democracy and stuff and and she has no response to that hussie's character has no response to that even though anyone you know a radical polit- like politics person would would have answers to these things that mostly you know the complaints about america geopolitically now are not about the american revolution and the democracy that took place afterwards it's you know other stuff that occurred um but you know it's it's like i say the movie doesn't really delve in or stake convincing ground in any of that but i guess more interesting within it is of course is i mean this is a film that's kind of positing hong kong's you know i mean for all for anyone who's unfamiliar generally speaking when you're talking about hong kong movies particularly the 80s and 90s they are all kind of presented within the specter of the 1997 handover to mainland china that british m m or like britain organized that essentially they would be handing back control of the the island to mainland china on a specified date which is kind of an incredible existential change to leave hanging out in front of a population for like 20 years 20 plus years to be like hey just on this day in 1997 everything will change your entire you know cultural political reality will will fundamentally alter and we're not sure what it will be like anyway have fun go to work so (laughs) you know this this movie has a lot of that i mean they actually they they specifically invoke it at one point uh our cia operative uh warns if the police hong kong police don't cooperate with his goals that he will cause so much shit it will be like it's 1997 already so you know there, there are these little pointers within it but i, I you know i don't know if it, it successfully builds up anything other than maybe lamb's own cynicism of being wedged mm-hmm. between america and china as kind of two competing superpowers that hong kong is not particularly uh gonna benefit from you know being being a geopolitical ally or an asset to a foreign power is not necessarily going to put you in a good position otherwise you know um Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it's i think it's interesting the the media element and i'm not exactly sure what to make of them here but yeah rosamund kwan plays the plays the the tv reporter in kind of an unusual english speaking role don't get to see that too often but um she did it kind of reminded me a little bit actually kind of like johnny toes breaking news and this kind of like there's this subplot about mm-hmm. media representation and spin and how to frame stories how they how they are framed for tv um yeah the like it's it's just kind of like a 
a strange element within it, and I don't think it's it's very convincingly put together by the end of it. We do have this kind of final story that she puts together, which is basically like the CIA and Hong Kong police bravely defeated the terrorist, but there's also lots of footage of like the guy like carting around a grenade and all the cops like cowering in terror in her police report or in her news report. So who who the hell knows what anyone watching that in the, within the world of the movie would make of any of this? It seems it seems kind of crazy, but I think that's undeclared war generally. It's just kind of a very heightened reality and heightened political stakes that maybe just doesn't quite nail all the notes down, but it's kind of like, it must have felt like, I mean, this is a very fractious time within, as I say, with, with fall of the USSR, with Chinese mainland politics, and with just the eventual uh, handover looming. I, I suppose it's just it's an interesting friction within it that I think does lend the film maybe a little bit more grit and conviction than maybe the script actually produces, even and and that certainly the actors within it can get together. Because, I mean, really, I honestly, this is a movie of, like, two or three English-speaking characters moving through a world of Hong Kong Chinese-speaking characters, and most of them look like they don't really know what the hell the other is doing at any given time. And that's, like, that's that's just the actors themselves. That's not in the movie necessarily. <laughs> uh, it's just I don't think they had much time to organize all this stuff. So it it has a somewhat amateurish element. Like I I think it would it would have been a lot better I think if they'd gotten better English speaking actors for. It. I mean you have Olivia Hussey and Vernon Wells. They're both they're quite good, but our lead he's not great in this. And I you know I don't haven't seen any of his other work because uh, I've never seen Ghoulies actually. Come to think of it, maybe he's fantastic in it. It's possible. But I will uh, say he's here, not. He's yeah. not. <laughs> darn. Seems, I honestly seems think he's much better here. I mean, I didn't mind his performance. I it was what it was. It was it was the unhinged '80s cop who's just running around being a complete fucking asshole. It's it's not <laughs> nuanced at all. But no. it's not a performance I I had issue with. Sure. No. no, I I just I think it's it's a question of between him not really being able to lend as much gravitas to his character and Olivia Hussey not being given the script to create any kind of like convincing quandary for herself as you know a a true believer in some political theory or other uh the, the film kind of like skips around certain beats and i wonder if maybe it was just to avoid you know trouble um not that ringo lamb was particularly good at doing that anyway i mean school on fire got banned when it first came out. they had to do all kinds of reshoots and checks to get that thing released mm -hmm. um but maybe, maybe just, you know, why why mess around too much when you can just say the World Liberation Army, which isn't a real thing, is bad and they believe in something <laughs> and, you know, run from there. It's well, just, yeah, it's basic like Soviet coding, right? Like, oh, mm. Soviet Union bad, mm. even though Vernon Wells is Australian. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe his accent is part of his... Uh, Master of Disguise persona. Oh my his god, Master I of Disguise love his stuff shit. is great. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> Vernon Wells is so good in this. Like, <laughs> at one point, he he dresses up as as like uh, he's supposed to be like an old man, but he dresses up like an old Chinese man, which is <laughs> insane because he's Vernon Wells, and uh, he looks just completely fucking ridiculous. And then even his whole big bad thing, and this is the magic of Vernon Wells, he totally sells his character, which has zero foundation or roots in anything. Like there's, it, it actually reminds me a little bit of uh, the, you know, Connell Cochran, the villain of Halloween 3. 
And oh, yeah. there's the this you know iconic moment in that movie, uh, at least iconic to me, uh, where uh, they're like. Wait, you you you've stolen Stonehenge, and then you're gonna do this, and then you're gonna you know put it in into the Halloween mass and the children and blah blah blah. Why would you do such a thing? How did you get this here? And he's just like, "Well, that's a story for another day." Like that's his whole explanation, <laughs> and that's basically how Vernon Wells handles this. Like at one point, um, he's you know he's talking. Uh, he, he ends up killing uh, the woman who's like the the true believer in the cause or whatever. And he, you know, is, is kind of like mugging at the camera. It is just like, my revolution is because I like profits and revolution is that's how I make money. It's like, how are you making money from this? I don't I don't understand yeah. what the fuck you're doing. Who's <laughs> paying great. him? Who's paying him to do it? Unclear. And also Very by unclear. the end of the movie, he's just done a weird personal vendetta against a, like a CIA guy for no reason. Like he's breaking into a news station just him and a friend storm an entire news station just mm-hmm. because they're kind of, there's some bad blood, which doesn't seem yeah. like the thing a, a cold-hearted mercenary would do. No, that's no. like the entire antithesis of what he's been set up as. Like, no one could even describe his face. He's a, he's a shadowy operator, always moving and attacking where he wants. He's the chess master. And then at the end, yeah, seemingly kind of unmotivated. All of a sudden, he's like... Oh, he's got motivations. He's mad because uh, the CIA busted up his assassination attempt. They they ruined his exploding flower pot, and he just couldn't take it. So, and they they do it in the funny. I love that scene because yeah, the the CIA basically leverage an enormous business convention as a trap for a terrorist. Uh, they're just basically like, we know he wants to do this, so what we should do is just he, we know he wants to like do something bad and kill people and cause mayhem. So what we'll do is we'll just stage the event anyway, but we'll have police there, which would seem like how you would just stage an event like that anyway. And it starts off and they're like, we were missing two of our men. We don't know where they went. And it's like, well, we better just keep going. I was like, I think this would be around the time when you should be evacuating everything. Yeah, it they, like somehow, they somehow allow a bomb in this thing that they're <laughs> fucking monitoring everyone who enters. I mean, which again, from a Ringo Lamb perspective of everyone's kind of terrible is, I mean, yeah, it kind of, it kind of makes sense. I was thinking like, um, well, another one of Ringo Lamb's movies I watched recently, Wild Search, has like a meat cute with Chow Yun-Fat's grizzled cop and a woman, and the meat cute is literally him smashing into her home, pointing a gun at her and screaming. And later mm-hmm. on in the movie, while reminiscing about falling in love with this woman, Ringo Lamb reinserts that scene with a ballad playing over it. <laughs> totally insane but generally to, to to point out that there's there's a certain uh cynicism about institutions within his cinema that reoccurs whether or not they are explicitly on fire mm-hmm. yeah 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 sure. yeah i i mean i don't care that this movie is muddy and the pacing is kind of wonky uh yeah you could say like oh well i think there's corners cut it was rushed but that yeah, it makes it all the more impressive that that church scene is is literally one of the best looking action scenes I, I've seen in years. So yeah, it's yeah. Wild. If you can do that when you're rushed and uh, you know trying to patch something together, then uh, well, I guess that's why you're getting covered on the podcast because you're doing something remarkable. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the the action in this and the stunt work is uh, real really good stuff. I mean, they're they just. A lot of like grenades thrown, blowing buildings up, and just people fling, getting flung out of windows, on land, landing on busy streets into like 
hopefully some padding hidden in like a, a market stall or something but like just a lot of people getting thrown from very high buildings and stuff in this one it's it all looks very convincingly dangerous in the way that i guess hong kong cinema of the time generally did because i think most of it was considerably dangerous <laughs> uh, but ringo lam really dials that up it really really feels dangerous and it yeah. really is an all-timer squib movie it, it's just fucking incredible squib oh, yeah. movie it's very good. Yeah, fucking Ringo Lamb. Another interview that I read with him, he was talking about this stuff too. And uh, he was talking about how he's he's making, you know, fewer movies as he gets older and uh, how he didn't enjoy working in America because he's like, yeah, the American stuntmen, they're much more careful, but they end up getting hurt anyways. I liked working in Hong Kong because I feel like we got hurt just as much, but we didn't have to follow any rules. <laughs> Dude, I mean, this isn't one of those movies where you're watching it and you're like, God, there's so many things that, you, that are just profoundly fucking dangerous. Even at the end when Vernon Wells is in this, uh, this like boat chase and they just have the two boats going full speed, just ramming into each other repeatedly. And you're like, holy shit, someone's get their head taken off. It's great. I love it. Uh, well, you know, this is this is a good transition point because. If the movie undeclared... features a lot of decapitation. <laughs> yeah, this movie features a lot of decapitations. Uh, no, I, so if Undeclared War is kind of a, a mishmash of everything that you associate with Ringo Lamb, uh, the next one, which I think for my money is one of Ringo Lamb's absolute best films, deeply underrated, it's fucking amazing. And it, I think it was like, as far as budget to success goes, I think it was his biggest commercial failure like ever. Uh but yeah, Burning Paradise from 1994 is, in a lot of ways, the exact opposite of uh, what you would associate with Ringo Lamb. Uh, first of all, it's uh, it takes place. It's a, it's a historical film. Uh, it's it's like high fantasy. It's what Ringo Lamb would call a uh, a swordsman film, uh, which are these you know like Chinese fantasy action films. And he hates these movies so much that. Part of the reason why he slowed down his production, because this is a guy who made a shitload of movies pretty early in his career, and then, uh, you know, towards the end of his career, definitely pulled back. Uh, he said that people would come to him with movies, and they would always come to him with these, uh, like, high fantasy Chinese swordsman movies, and he would always tell them, no, you better go after Joy Hawk. <laughs> so he would literally just pass it along. He's like, I don't want to fucking deal with this. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Burning Paradise, 1994, uh, is uh, just unbelievable. It's one of those movies where it's it's exhilarating in a lot of ways. And Choi Hawk's actually, a, he's a producer on this, and you can kind of feel his fingerprints on it. Uh, but it has all of the claustrophobic action that you'd associate with Ringo Lamb. But then you've got this wild kind of fantasy element to it because... Uh, they're they're trapped in like an inescapable church prison, and it's uh, it's it's fucking incredible. It's just nonstop decapitations, horse murder, and dick jokes, and then a lot of traps and stuff. So <laughs> it's fun. It's great. It's it's basically perfect. Right. Yeah. Uh, your mind goes to Shaw Brothers on this. I mean, obviously, it's closer to like uh, Troy Hawk in scope and production. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's pretty gorgeous i mean there are times where it looks like a fucking kung fu movie where you're like okay that was an interesting fucking jump cut or yeah there's some really ropey 
uh, sets where you're like, the, the padding is not hidden <laughs> in some of these things, but it, it's not, doesn't detract. It just adds to the feel of like that Shaw Brothers, like, this is a fucking gonzo ass movie. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really interesting element to it because it's very much he's and gone. So it's really a good way of describing Ringo Lamb's injection into a pretty well at this point well established genre, retelling a very well established story that uh, the the sacking of the Red Lotus Temple is a very old story and it's actually got very uh, long roots in Hong Kong cinema. It's been made. Um, Shaw Brothers made an adaptation of it. I believe one of the earliest Hong Kong films ever produced was uh, a telling of the story. So it's one of these stories that's been around for a long, long time, and it's and it's based somewhat in in historical fact. Generally speaking, I believe the the sacking of the Shaolin Temple by the Manchu and the subsequent rounding up of Shaolin and and them fighting back and so on. Um, but if you watch the movie, not much else of it is is grounded in reality. But it's kind of a curious film because I mean I suppose it's like, um, kind of like the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, like basically like the grittiest elements of that, like just that's the whole movie is essentially just like labyrinthine, grungy tunnels and and violence, but obviously ramped up to far beyond PG PG thirteen levels, anything mm. that would be acceptable there. And it kind of becomes, it starts off as just kind of like a standard like kung fu movie that you're kind of like, okay, here's the good guy, here's the bad guy. And you're kind of like, okay, and they're trapped in this prison, but they can escape. But then you start to realize that the prison is somewhat like this supernatural almost space. And it, it becomes apparent that it's a, uh, the film has this broader kind of purgatorial theme to it. This idea that even, even the villain of this movie is trapped in the temple over which he he presides. At one point, mm. he says, "If if you could just leave the Red Lotus Temple, I'd leave." So you know, it's kind of this strange idea, you know, and um, that to for everything to just be taken something more than just at face value. This is basically almost like a film about Sisyphean struggle and and the the I guess you know life itself, but told through incredibly gory wire assisted kung fu. Which is the way we like it, frankly, because yeah. life itself can be pretty dull otherwise. So, you know, yeah, throw in a flying guillotine or two. Oh my god, I love that shit. This has, like, all my favorite shit in it. Like, as soon as he brought out the flying guillotine, that's like, if, if you put that in your kung fu movie, automatic 10 out of 10, perfect film. Every single time. Especially when it's like a CG one. It's like early 90s, like, optical <laughs> oh, overlay yeah. or something. I'm not sure how they even did it, but it looks it looks distinctive. For sure. Oh my god! And there, there's so many like, like, like charming effects in this. Uh, you mentioned Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but actually, it reminds me of the like the Indiana Jones when you go to uh, fucking Disney World or whatever, and they have the live action like Indiana Jones show that you can go to. That's what this looks like. <laughs> and I love how they have this this one room, and it's it's like this stone cave with a bridge that goes across the middle, and they use it for uh, probably like 200 separate scenes. There's just any chance they get to have people run across that bridge or fight on that bridge to the point where they're like, okay, well, we got to use the bridge again. What are we going to do? Light the whole fucking room on fire. Sure. It, it's fantastic. It's it's so charming. And then you've got this villain who, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of, I don't know, he's got some weird supernatural powers, which uh, don't entirely make sense, but uh, who cares? But like a magic paint or something. 
Yeah, that, yeah like, what's, what's his power. magic power? Yeah, he he takes a paintbrush and he can fling the paint across the room like they're giant needles that can like go through you. It's nuts. And then at another point, he uh, he like kidnaps the female lead and he's getting handsy with her in his bed. And then he gets mad because she's kind of like going catatonic instead of fighting back. And he's a he's a little freak and he wants her to fight back. And so in his frustration, another like servant girl is in the room and he just walks up, like magically throws a sheet at her and then rips her head off in the span of like three seconds. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's one of those movies. Yeah, the, the villain is fantastic, honestly. I think it another one of the films, honestly, where I think the, the heroes are not the most, uh, what would you say, engaging characters, frankly. They, they're fine. I would say Willie Chi plays Fong Sai-yok, who's you know, a very famous folk hero in Chinese cinema. Um, and he's just kind of like he's he's just he's there and he's he's fine, but it's not like you're gonna be like he's not like Jet Li in Once Upon a Time in China where you're really there's this, this sense of a like battle within him and stuff. He's a very for for Ringo Lam particularly, he's actually a very um as as Fong Sayok, he's a very one one dimensionally good character. He's kind of unambiguously mm -hmm. the source of light in the film and of of the correctitude throughout. Um, the villain is great because he's played by Wong Kang Kong or Wong Kang Kong, who uh, it was interesting to me watch because because the villain is an artist and there's a few scenes in the movie where he just starts painting in the middle of scenes and he's like legitimately painting things. And I was mm -hmm. like, this this is risky. How do you do that? And it turns out Wong Kang Kong is an artist and he's a set designer. And apparently in an interview that that, that he talks about uh, Ringo Lam didn't get a set designer for this movie. He just didn't bother. He said he'd just do it himself and he knew Wong Kang Kong was an actor or was a set designer too and he's like, you can help me and they just they came <laughs> up with the whole thing together. So all these paintings that he does and obviously his final fight where he starts using paints as weapons and things are all just kind of geared in towards his actor's sensibilities and like really the villain is the 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 kind of like driving force of it all because he presides over this temple he's obsessed with staying young he's obsessed with like purity versus corruption and so on he's essentially like kind of trying to trying to freeze life or hold on to control every facet and of course ultimately it will all spiral out of control because of the shaolin wish to escape and be free and uh eventually this will end up being ironically another uh prison on fire movie effectively the third ringo mm -hmm. lamb movie that i believe has a prison literally on fire certainly in this case um so you know kind of recurring themes again but this is uh interesting in that i think this i think this is his only period movie so it's just kind of unusual in that front but it still brings in as we've mentioned like this really funky violence like i mean this is a pretty gore splattered uh kung fu movie people get limbs chopped off there's just spikes going into bodies it's just it's pretty brutal stuff throughout in this. So it's it's kind of that same aesthetic that Ringo Lam would apply to a gunfight, but instead it's it's guys, you know, fighting with using martial arts, using their fists, but achieving things that normally your fists could not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh I, I will say that even though this is a, a movie that is, you know, it's a period piece, but also it has probably for the first and maybe only time in Ringo Lamb's career, a protagonist who is definitely coded as just good and not a fucking asshole. Uh, he's got to sneak in his cynicism. And I think one of my favorite parts is towards the end of the movie, 
you know, there's this this big riot, and uh, well, he he does he does a fake out at one point, and you think everyone's gonna escape, and then they get dumped back into the prison, which I loved. But my favorite part is they're about to escape, and they get to uh, a giant Buddha statue that has been defaced in some way. And they're like, oh, we got to pray to the Buddha statue. And then one of the fucking traps, because Ringo Lamb, is then guns come out of the Buddha statue and all these monks who had just fought through all this stuff, they get blasted by a bunch of guns <laughs> from the Buddha statue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it's, really speaks right. towards towards the central, a central thing of, of sacrifice and, and, you know, struggle through. It, it's interesting because they're basically praying to a f uh, almost kind of a false god because he's a desecrated buddha within this desecrated temple effectively and he ultimately kills a bunch of them but then also soon after the buddha head knocks through a section of the wall when it falls or whatever and and lock and they see daylight and it points towards and there's this idea you know after x number of people have died you know, maybe Buddha will help you, you know, but essentially like there, everything is struggle. Everything is uphill. Everything is, is competing forces dragging each other back. And, you know, I think that's, that's kind of what, what's comes out of this film. And I, I find it, I think it's quite an interesting reflection on kind of a very universal theme. Um, yeah, for me, this is, this is not a, a Ringo Lam movie. I've heard people talk about it a lot, certainly, and I think it's, it's really surprising. It did not do well in the box office, like you said, Steve, um, which is interesting. I mean, early 90s, I guess we were coming right off the back of, like, Jet Li was play, played Fong Sai-yuk uh, the year prior in two Koryun movies, which uh hard to follow that, um, and they're yeah. two pretty good movies, too. Maybe audiences were kind of like, we don't want... Uh, dollar store Jet Li Fong Sayuk guy. Um, interesting to tell. I'm not 100% sure what went wrong, but the movie honestly is is blameless. It is it's a pretty great piece of work. Yeah, totally. it is. It is. It's a uh, it's just a, a blast from start to finish. Frankly, even I, I much like the last film here. We the, this thing starts off with a bang, even though it it, it does involve as as we mentioned, it, it would seemingly involve the death of at least one horse. Which of course, Ringo Lamb's like, well, I guess if the horse is dead. We might as well put it in the fucking movie because I don't right. know. It, it was uh, yeah. There's like a scene where a horse stumbles on a dune and takes a big old tumble, and I'm like. I don't think a horse can do that. <laughs> nope. Yeah, yeah, there's one scene where it's like falling and it looks like they trust one up maybe. Like its legs don't come out in the way you think they would. I yeah. mean, I don't know. I'm not asking questions. I don't know how it happens. And horse tripping has been a, a time-honored movie tradition back since the 1800s when it was also wrong to do it. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, they I, do also I, have I, an incredibly make... fake horse corpse, so that's another boot right, bonus. Right, yeah, we do have an actual horse decapitation, which that that you don't see that every day. No. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it, it is a wild fucking movie from start to finish, and it does have lots of bullshit if you're, like, persnickety and need your Hollywood uh, uh, perfect effects. It won't be for you, but uh, you probably would have stopped listening to us long ago, but, um, yeah, a lot of rubber swords, <laughs> a lot of bad CG, and, uh, well, not a lot, but enough to be, <laughs> to stick out and, and be like, okay, this is, uh, it's something different, but in a good way, frankly, it's just like, mm. so energetic, and yeah, I, I, I kind of love it, this, I, this is by far the standout for me, and, uh, 
I was surprised by that because, frankly, on, on its surface, it would seem to be the one that would interest me least. But I think it's a uh, really interesting and successful work. That uh, yeah, I, I, there and it's a, it's a lot more coherent in its theming as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, yeah. and, I mean, it's got these incredible moments too. And just like because I, I took notes and a few things, like Ringo Lamb is a guy we're talking about, like his 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 violence and his attention to detail and his, his sense of like electrifying dramatic impact and stuff. There's a scene in this where, where there's just blood dripping on like uh blacksmithing sword. So it's like blood dripping onto these blades that are then sizzling on these like red hot blades. And it's just like, this just incredibly gnarly scent. Like you almost smell the scene and it's just the whole movie has that kind of energy to it. It mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. incredibly grim and kind of engaging on that level. But it is also, as we, we've mentioned previously, it also is a very, in Hong Kong, not unusual potty humor strain, but it feels really mm -hmm. weird in this movie in particular, the way they integrate it. It doesn't, it seems even more unhinged, which I guess is kind of like something you just got to be used to with Hong Kong cinema, that they'll go from, you know, horrific murder and loss of loved ones to someone joking about, you know, someone's trying to be gay you know, or whatever, and it's like, you know, don't touch me or whatever, you know, it's, it's some weird stuff like that that just feels, I, I don't know, it feels like a producer note, but yeah, who, yeah. who knows, I think the, you know. The grandmaster uh, of the, the Shaolins is like uh, calling, <laughs> he's, yeah, he's calling Feng Se-yuk, yeah, he's calling Feng Se-yuk a, a uh, yeah, a, a British slang for a cigarette in the middle of a, uh, like, pile of uh, a room filled with fetid corpses that they're both <laughs> left to die in or something you know it, it's a yeah a strange juxtaposition of tone certainly and it also yeah, still has that weird uh if i if i were to poke at that like weird american like uh stuff in the first film uh undeclared war then in this one it, it, the the buddha stuff at the very end very strange I, I was like what what is going on here where all of a sudden the female love interest is like they're in this burning building and they think they're both going to die. And, and she's like, maybe the greatest victim of all was the boot. <laughs> like what? <laughs> Wait, what? is that? I guess they're over towards, towards a broader theme. I suppose the the, you know, I, I think, I think there is genuinely, it seems like the, the, cause I believe part of it is from a specific Buddhist scripture cone, but, um, yeah, you know, uh, like, we must imagine Sisyphus happy, we we must imagine Buddha rejoicing in hell, you know, that, like, whatever, life is suffering and, and we just have to, to overcome, I suppose. And and the idea that all of this is being applied, the Buddha statue does, literally, it's just sitting there, it's just a statue. So the attributions for or against Buddha in the movie are, are maybe Ringo Lam is intoning are, are somewhat baseless and empty. And I think I think it is interesting that the 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 leader of the Shaolin monks, our Feng Saiyok, our hero is, you know, he's a wonderful hero and he's, he means well and he's righteous. And then his senior in the movie is a bumbling idiot, mostly. Um, yeah. And, and is he, he, actually his multiple seniors in the movie is two. Uh, one who dies earlier on the film. Idiots, like. And they're both bumbling <laughs> idiots and kind of like overly obsessed with, you know, people feeling them up or trying to feel up women. Uh, the, you know, they're they're lecherous old men, essentially, and it's this very strange kind of thing, especially compared to the kind of purified villainy and vision of the bad guy, who's like at this whole, you know, kind of control and vision of what he wants that's deranged, but at least 
focused and coherent to some degree. So yeah, I, th I think again, institutional elements are brought in here. I don't, I, you know, I wouldn't say this film is is anti-Buddha or anything, but no. you know, I think there's this idea of the application of man and and everything can be, you know, basically we we screw up all this stuff. Basically, you know, whether God is good or not wouldn't really matter because humans are terrible. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think that is spot on. I, I suppose my issue is there's a lot of nuance in the interplay between. Uh, the left and right politics, uh, the outside forces in Hong Kong in the first film, and here there's there's a lot of complex discourse about uh, the impact of religious belief, and yeah, in in both instances we have these <laughs> strange things where the subtext attempts to become text, and either through uh, really shoddy uh, scripting or a really shoddy translation, it turns into something that just confounds me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there you well, go. But you never know what's going to happen next. And that's, that's why well, I love Hong Kong cinema. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's great for that. And, you know, if, if you haven't seen Burning Paradise, definitely check it out. Uh, everyone should watch this fucking movie. Uh, yeah, if you listen to this great. podcast, this is, this is 100% in the, in the optimism vaccine canon. Also, I think it's good. Uh, I, I know a lot of people who are, into say like you know 80s action films and and horror movies and things like that but they won't cross the bridge into you know gonzo hong kong stuff shaw brothers all those things you need a gateway drug if you want a gateway drug it's burning paradise this is the bridge from you know the fact that you like evil dead too this this is the bridge that takes you to shaw brothers land so uh highly highly recommend it now we're gonna we're gonna fast forward a couple years to uh, uh back to classic Ringo Lamb. And this I love because uh it's a movie called Full Alert, and it answers a very important question. And that question is, what if we had heat, but it was a Hong Kong movie? Yes. The answer is you got full yeah. alert. <laughs> in in describing a Western analog for all of these, this is most certainly Ringo Lamb does heat. Yeah, I, I think Full Alert is really funny because it's like, imagine Heat, but imagine it was about a cop who hated being a cop and a robber who hated being a robber, and it ends with the end credits with the, uh, the sound of the policeman crying. And that's that's <laughs> Ringo Lamb's Heat. Yep, yep. Classic Ringo Lamb. God, and this guy, Jesus, man. The, the cop in this, the lead cop is classic Ringo Lamb, an absolute fucking dickhead. Uh, but just it, it, the way that this movie just just like kind of snaps you to attention. You're like, oh, my fucking God. Uh, there's all these little moments that, that Ringo Lamb inserts where it it really is like a like a gut punch and it, it heightens the tension so much. There's this great scene where, uh, you know, he's it, the, the cop is chasing after our, our bank robber criminal guy. And they're in a crowded Hong Kong street, real crowded. And he thinks he has a chance to take a shot at him. And he takes a shot and instead he like wings a guy on a motorcycle. And then we watch the motorcycle and the guy just fucking fly down the stairs. And then again, it's Ringo Lamb. So what does he do? No, he doesn't just like run past the guy or stop to help the guy like you would expect. There's this whole thing where he kind of has this crisis like, 
am I really doing the right thing here? And he's like, yeah. And he just continues to pursue the bad guy. <laughs> and that's kind of the essence of this movie. Uh, it also has a lot of grimy shit in it that speaks to the whole idea of, you know, this isn't staged and, and everything is, you know, separated and we got our permits pulled and all that. They're just kind of doing things on the fly. Uh, right before the scene I just described, he has another encounter where the bad guy basically knocks his gun away and then throws his gun into, I don't even fucking know what, like literally the most gag inducing, disgusting garbage can I have ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. It's pure dumpster juice, throws the gun in. And then we watch him just like digging through the dumpster juice. And I was like fighting back the urge to fucking throw up on my own chest. Uh, so yeah, that's what this movie is. It's Hong Kong heat. It's fucking gritty. It's very raw in the way that it's shot. And uh, it's it's a wild ride. It's great. Uh, Jack, uh, you like this one more than I did. I, it's not that I didn't like it. It's just that it's so familiar. Like to me, uh, it, it gave me, this is the first one I watched and it gave me less of a sense of what, what Lamb was about. Uh, to me, uh, it, it feels like many Hong Kong action movies I've seen before. Uh, very Johnny Toe, uh, and sure. Yeah. You know, uh, even down to, uh, Xing Wan Lao, the, uh, inspector in this film is is also stars in a few johnny toe films i believe as well that we can yes he's, uh, he's a recurring player and i think i think it's interesting because this film to me strikes me as kind of a an intersection in hong kong cinema itself because yeah it it came out in 1997 so it came out the year of the handover of hong kong so it's mm -hmm. kind of this fundamental shift in the country itself 1997, I think, was also the year Milky Way Productions, Johnny Toe and Waikai Fai's company. I think they started in 1997. So it's kind of interesting. This film is very reminiscent of the kind of movies they would start making um, kind of independently at that point through their own production company. So it's with Ching Wen Lao as, as a you know recurring actor. Um, he'd already worked with Johnny Toe several times at this point, too, but not for Milky Way Productions, for other companies. Um, so it's kind of like there's this interesting like point where it's at that point where where Milky Way production would kind of become the I guess the the kind of like face of Hong Kong cinema post handover for Western audiences certainly. Um, but it's also within the film a key plot point is that um, that Francis N's character who's orchestrating this bank robbery. Um, he is his master plan heist. He is being supported by a group of Taiwanese bad guys, kind of robbers who've come in, but they've basically come in from Taiwan to make their money through a couple of, you know, targeted crimes in Hong Kong, and then they're heading back to Taiwan with the money, which is very reminiscent, I think, and I think probably meant to make us think back to um, Long Arm of the Law, which had a, sim a very similar storyline, but it was about mainland Chinese gangsters coming to Hong Kong to basically make their fortune doing crime and ultimately they kind of did get you know caught up in this horrific bloody violence in hong kong as the police close in on them and the, there's a, a deeply cynical violent gritty thriller that really and i, I only saw along on the law for the first time maybe like two or so years ago and it was kind of like watching a birth it was like seeing the birth of that 80s 90s hong kong 
kind of contemporary thriller aesthetic. It's it's Long Arms of the Law, I think, is, is that's the start of it. And so I think it's interesting that Full Alert, I think, has a, has a very clear nod back to that while pointing forward to Milky Way image. Um, yeah, I, I think it's really it's a really interesting movie. And of course, it's shot through with just, uh, as usual, Ringo Lam cynicism that, I mean, really, uh, Ching Wan Lao's cop is like, he's going off the deep end trying to capture this guy and trying to work out, you know, how much of it is personal. Like, it becomes increasingly personal between the two of them as things progress. But, um, you know, he's he's shooting at civilians. He's endangering other people. The the villain is basically, he his, his heist is uh, personally motivated. Yes, he wants to take a bunch of money, but it's basically a, a revenge for them having, you know, stolen his money through gambling or whatever. Um, it's just, it's a whole movie basically about where, where the two, you know, cops and robbers are flip sides of the same coin. It's like, and that coin is just really grimy and you probably want to stay away from it. Uh, it's, it's one of those kind of movies. I, I just thought it was very satisfying. It looks beautiful. Uh, there are several shots in this that I think are maybe some of the best that Ringo Lam has ever put together that I can think of. I mean, he's, he's always got this very kind of like pointed kind of, uh, gray and blue steely city cinematography you know that kind of like is 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 apparent throughout a lot of his movies and nice compositions but there's in the final showdown here in particular there are some really just amazing shots kind of of each of them looming over each other and various as the the balance of power shifted back and forth and yeah it's, it's just a movie where there's you you couldn't root for anyone in this movie it's it's absolutely um you know, kind of a, a movie about uh, two terrible guys who are inextricably intertwined and will push each other to the limits and they'll do an enormous amount of damage along the way and to what end, we're not really sure. Which, you know, is an interesting thing, again, obviously politically, as we, we discussed the handover. It's, it's the, at one point, actually, the police chief in this movie chides the main, the main police officer and says, you know, look, it's the year of the handover. We need stability. Uh, and it's and it's a movie basically about a complete lack of stability, about everything kind of slipping one way or the other. That you know, crime investigation is personal vendetta. Uh, crime is good. Cops are bad. Everything's terrible. Everything's violent. Uh, everyone is you know in danger and kind of like treading water. Um, yeah, it's just a very kind of satisfyingly nasty thriller. I think. Yeah, yeah it they, definitely plays with some inversion between protagonist and antagonist. I feel like, uh, I'd say by the midway point, you're kind of rooting for the thief uh, to get away with this stuff. And yeah, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, yeah. I don't know. I I think it's a really tight. So I like. I think this is easily the the tightest of the three, and uh, maybe that's why I like it least because it just feels. Uh, just so much less distinctive to me, but uh, it's certainly not something I would hesitate to recommend. Like it's, yeah, if you're into a a Michael Mann type thing, or if if your entry to Hong Kong was Johnny Toe, yeah, you're gonna like this. It's it's uh, yeah, it's excellent. But uh, is it? I, I I just I suppose I didn't find much of of Lamb in it uh, when I was looking, and that might be just the fault of the order I watched them in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it does have, like, I mean, it's got this stupendous car chase in the middle of it, which I think is a very, you know, Ringo Lam kind of setup. It's it's sprawling through, like, 
a huge chunk of Hong Kong locations and it looks like they shot on the roads. Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it looks logistically like it was been a nightmare to put together. I'm guessing mm-hmm. he must have gotten some kind of permissions for it. Otherwise it's spe- like he, he out freed can Friedkin if so, cause it looks spectacularly dangerous. The kind of yeah. stuff he's doing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, th- I think it's got that kind of like contemporary, like it's got some really solid set pieces. We end with like a, a cool heist scene as things go increasingly wrong. Although I will say like if, if I had issues with the film again, it might be that the, for a tight thriller to kind of present these men as, as, you know, kind of operating on a very concentrate kind of energy that they're, they're very, you know, involved in their work and then kind of like details oriented. The script does lack detail specificity that mean like certain things happen. Like, for example, there's a discussion where, where he's breaking into the safe of the place he's robbing and it's kind of like, and the outer door is on a time lock so no one can open it. And then they kind of like, once the heist is undergoing, it's like, well, I guess we better ring the chairman and get the secret code to open the lock. <laughs> and it's like, wait, what? That seems like a, a weird cop-out at that point. There's And there's a few other points throughout the movie where, um, you know, it's like, it, it just feels like there's kind of... um details glossed over for convenience but i think it really it falls down to a a battle between the the cop and the villain and how much they they basically overlap with each other which i think is based on a random piece of trivia i only fairly recently learned is that um and i think maybe informs an enormous amount of hong kong cinema is that you know the the police in Hong Kong and the triad, the organized crime gangs, worship the exact same god. They are both considered, um, I think, Guangdao, I think. I may have that wrong. He's the old general. He's often like a big red general with a huge bladed spear um, mm. that you see in like various Chinese iconography. Um, he is the patron saint of both the police and organized crime in Hong Kong, which I think is a very funny detail and it makes enormous amount of sense when you think of something like infernal affairs and then that getting ported back over to the west with the departed and how they're very different movies on that level because there's so much stuff built into i guess hong kong uh culture that really mirrors the cop versus robber aesthetic that uh you know kind of that that push and pull between them um, that you know, Western audiences may not immediately key into, but it's presented with just such a plum here that it's it's kind of a very convincing and and satisfying to just revel in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, shit, I think we got to wrap things up. Uh, but that being said, uh, yeah, if, you should check out all these movies. Watch more fucking Ringo Lamb. You want if you want an idea of what like street level Hong Kong was like say, you know, late 1980s, 1997 transition, contemporary, all you got to do is watch Ringo Lamb movies. Because if you watch uh, City on Fire, Full Alert, and then uh, what, what the 2015 one, Wild City, it, that's basically, it. that's your tour of gritty street level Hong Kong right there for you. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're definitely going to cover more Ringo Lamb, right? This, this isn't a one and done. Yeah, no, no, we have to. We're obliged. We're obliged, yeah. 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 Gotta do it. Gotta do it. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I guess we'll wrap things up. So, Myros, what are you putting over this week? Ah, uh, boy, you know, I, I had occasion to watch uh, Peeping Tom, which I have not seen in, God, probably damn near 20 years. And uh, going back to it, oosh, boy, what a formative text, you know. Uh, if you're into horror at all and you haven't seen Peeping Tom, 
I would recommend it. Not that it's especially necessarily a horror film, but it certainly establishes so much of that language. Uh, it's just a, a really fascinating work. I would, would highly recommend. Uh, I mean, probably you've seen it if you're listening to us, but uh, maybe not. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Kind of fell through the cracks for me, uh, even though I had seen it for a long time ago. But just, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's a special little movie. Mm-hmm. Jack, how about you? What are you putting over this week? God, I'm, look, I'm looking back through through the movies I've watched recently, and I, I've just been watching movies like Bad Cat and First Person Shooter, and I can't imagine mm. why I'd be doing that. Uh, so I'm going to put over a, a 1989 Hong Kong action movie I watched recently called The Blonde Fury, a.k.a. Ooh. Lady Reporter, which is another Cynthia Rothrock film um, directed by Mang Hoi, who was, uh, I think her then boyfriend kind of in Hong Kong. Um, but it's another basically star vehicle for Cynthia Rothrock where she comes over as a, an, I can't remember if it's the FBI or the CIA, it doesn't really matter. One of those, and she has to go undercover as a reporter and undercover and uncover some kind of intrigue in a newspaper that's smuggling something or other. Um, and basically it's great because it's basically just a bunch of absolutely insane martial arts fights and, uh, ends with a, a ridiculous vehicle stunts and stuff. Um, this plot is absolutely incomprehensible, to be honest. Um, just doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but the action, it's really something. It's some of, some of Rothrock's absolute best work, without question. It's kind of crazy to me, again, I know we discussed this when we did a pot on Cynthia Rothrock. It is crazy to me she was doing stuff like this, be showcasing such incredible athleticism and fighting prowess and so on. And then within like a year, she would be making China O'Brien with Robert Klaus for like five bucks shot on the uh. quick or whatever. Uh, man. So yeah, if, if you're interested in a Cynthia Rothrock movie, uh, watch Lady Reporter Blonde Fury. Don't watch China O'Brien. No, no. In a, in a more just world, Cynthia Rothrock would be uh, just one of the most revered uh, wealthy and uh, uh, action heroes of all time. But uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Yeah, we got China O'Brien. Goddamn. Uh, <laughs> well, hey, I'm going to put over a Hong Kong movie, too. And this is kind of weird, because normally we say put something over, and you're supposed to put over something that... I mean, we get cheeky sometimes. We put over something that's dog shit. But normally you put over something like, hey, this is something good that I listened to or played or, or watched or whatever. And I'm going to put over something that I genuinely don't think is very good, but also... It is so inventive and compelling and fucking weird that I want everyone to watch it anyways. And I think there's a lot of people that'll get something out of this that maybe I didn't fucking get out of it. But uh, I watched a little Hong Kong movie called The Witch from Nepal. And this is from the director of the Chinese Ghost Story series. And I'm not even going to bother to try and pronounce his name because I will just fucking brutalize it. But uh, let me let me give you the setup. You've seen the movie Splash, right? Okay. Yes, yes. So imagine uh, it's it's Splash, basically, uh, but you have book ending, the beginning and end here. You've got, like, just insane Hong Kong action, horror, crazy shit going on. And that's that's the fucking movie. Uh, basically, it's Chow Yun-Fat, and he is in Nepal and has an accident and then somehow is like a chosen hero for some undisclosed reason. It's all very confusing. And then there is a Jaguar man 
uh, trying to chase him down. So you think it's going to be this like full on action movie, uh, but it's not at all. It's this dipshit love story. And it's great too, because he's, he's in love with uh, the, this like fucking tribe woman, mystical witch and he's basically porking her on the side and falling in love with her. And he has a girlfriend the entire duration of the film who is not aware that he's banging this, this uh, Nepal witch lady and continues to do really, really nice things for her. So the entire time, you're just like, God, Chow Yun-Fat's the biggest fucking asshole in the world. And I hope the uh, Jaguar God rips him limb from limb. It's utterly fucking bizarre it's so 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 goddamn weird uh I, I i don't know it's just it's fucking weird highly recommend checking it out even though it's it's not great but it's it sure is something so uh yeah wish from nepal 1986 uh yeah with that i guess if you listen to this podcast right now check out the description and you will see a link and what does that link do why it takes you to our patreon and why would you want to go to our patreon and it's so you can give us money and we need money because podcasting is expensive. We got to pay for hosting. Uh, sometimes we need new equipment. Sometimes we need other shit. We got to buy Adam Myros a gun. He needs a big, big gun, a big, fancy gun. One of those bump stocks. He needs a bump stock. Myros, you need that bump stock? I, I don't even know what that is, to be honest. I, how, do, how do you not know what that is? I think, I think they just got bans. Hold on. Let me, let me, uh, let me bump stocks. Legal? I, yeah, I was always confused by that because it basically it, it makes a gun like fully automatic. Basically, it's like yeah, circumvents it the law. But you, yeah, no, Adam, I think you need one. I think honestly, yeah. a bump stack. Okay, I'll yeah, put it you, know. stack. Yeah, right, you need to intimidate more people, Adam. You need to you need to really get in there. I'll, yeah. well, I'll write the Santa Claus and then tell him I want one for Christmas. That's right. That's right. We're gonna we're gonna get you. We're gonna use all the podcast money and we're gonna buy you a fucking blunderbuss. And then you can get a bump stock from Santa Claus. So you got an automatic blunderbuss. It's going to fucking kick ass. Uh, but yeah, uh, Adam Myros needs guns and gun accessories for sure. So uh, yeah, please support us. Uh, yeah. And you know what? It's not like we're not going to give you anything for giving us money. No, no. Far from it. First of all, if you are an Optimism Vaccine patron, you get access to uh, tons of old podcast content that's only available on our Patreon feed. Uh, both written and, of course, you know, audio stuff. And on top of that, we try to, whenever we can, put out new patron-exclusive episodes. Also, if you live in the continent of the United States, I will send you a movie from my personal collection. And you know I got a lot, because we were just talking about how I got a bunch of shit on my shelves I haven't even fucking watched yet, uh, because I have, a, uh, I have a problem, a bit of an addiction here, I think. Uh, which which is good. We you know we have a whole podcast dedicated to uh, trying to work through the uh, obscene, stupid purchases that Jack Easton and I make. So uh, yeah. Anyways, I will send you a movie from my personal collection, and you will be pleased as punch with it. Now, if you decide to donate at a higher level, you get even more perks. You want to donate five dollars or more? Guess what? You get to vote on patron episodes. So last week we had two B originals this week. We had Ringo lamb. That is all because of our patrons. They voted on these. This is what the people wanted. We fucking gave it to them. And on top of that, you also get your name right out in the air. So who are five and above's right now? Adam Myros. Uh, we have David CWW, Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula. God bless all of them. 
And then, of course, if you want to donate at the highest level, you want to choose an Optimism Vaccine episode, anything you fucking want, $25 and it's yours. We've had a few in the past. They've all been great. And yours could be next. Anything under the sun will make it happen. So uh, with that, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us or blue sky at us. We're optimism vaccine on, on all those things. So yeah, check us out. And I think that's pretty much it. So we'll be back next week.